0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham.
1: Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham. Coming at you today, nearly live, from Ottawa, Ontario. And I have to say that for today's episode, it really reminded me of something that has come up before on the show and things that, as you grow up, you start to realize that when you're a kid you don't really know who your parents are. You, you know who they are, they're your parents, but they're not really fully formed people in your mind when you're five years old. And as you grow up, you get to know them more as, as people. And it's kind of this cool experience that as you grow up and become more of a fully formed person yourself, you sort of see your parents as fully formed people as well. And that's something that really struck me in reading The new book, Fighting for Democracy, a Canadian activist in Spain's Civil War. This is the story of Jim Higgins, who was English born, moved to Canada in the late 1920s, suffered a lot under the Great Depression, was put in a relief camp, and eventually went to Spain to participate in the Spanish Civil War as part of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. This was illegal for Canadians to do this, but he went and joined. And later in his life, he wrote about his experience during the Spanish Civil War. He started writing in 1977 at the urging of his five children who didn't know much about his experience. They knew that he fought in a war and that was about it. So they pushed him to write this book and he he wrote down his experiences and now 40 years later his daughter Jeanette has gone back to those materials put them all together and published the book it's a really fascinating story jim was obviously a very passionate individual really felt strongly about the things that he believed in and this story really just brings to life so much of what was going on in Canada in the 1930s and certainly the experiences of Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. So I would very much encourage everyone to check it out. It's one of these things that I, I feel strongly that history is about the stories of people and the people who lived in the past, and this is a great example of it. So I would certainly encourage everybody to check it out. And I had the opportunity to speak with Jeanette earlier about her father and about the book. So let's get right to my discussion with Jeanette Higgins. Okay, and joining us from Toronto, Jeanette Higgins, one of the co-authors of Fighting for Democracy, the true story of Jim Higgins. Jeanette, how are you today?
0: Well, I'm great, Sean, and uh, how are you?
1: (laughs) I'm doing doing well. Did I set that up right? Would you consider yourself a co-author, in this publication?
0: That was never the intention. It uh, certainly started out that I was simply organizing and editing my father's memoir. And as the years went by, it became apparent that I was more than just an editor. And I I played the role of different types of editor, you know, the structural editor and, um, I did hire a copy editor for this, but I, I played all the other editorial roles, and I came to realize that uh, I think I first wrote the introduction or my prologue, and then in the epilogue, it became very apparent to me that I, I wasn't necessarily a co-author, but I was very much with my father in the production of this book and his story. So that's why on the front it says Jim Higgins with Jeanette Higgins.
1: Yes, yes, it is with. Uh, and the with is one of the great things in publishing. You know, the book that I was involved with, we put with on it. It's a great word to have on, a, on the title of a, of a book. And I went through the the book in advance of the interview, and I noticed that in your prologue, which you mentioned you wrote, you talk about how you and your siblings pushed your father to write the book. It was later in his life, and you all didn't really know a lot about his experiences before you were born. But what really prompted the five of you to come together and push your father to sit down and actually write about his experiences?
0: I think because we knew really nothing about what happened to him before he met our mother. And we sensed there were secrets there. Um, And it was really my sister, Barbara. She's the one who deserves the credit because she used to question him and he used to evade her questions. (laughs) And she talked to all of us before that Christmas um, in 19... uh, 76 and that's when we really pushed him to write and the timing was right he was ready I think to talk about some of the things that had happened and of course I didn't really go through the material I started three years ago so (laughs) his words took a long time to reach us my brother has just finished reading the book he's the last of the siblings we're all gobsmacked (laughs)
1: Well, is is this the sort of thing? So, I mean, growing up, I think you you don't know really your parents. You know, when you're five or six years old, when you're a kid, they're your parents. They're there. But you don't really know them as people, as fully rounded people. And when you were a kid, how did you view your father?
0: I viewed my father as someone who worked in a factory, who just seemed like an average working class guy to me. Now, I knew my family was a little bit different because my mother had a university education. And so as I worked on this book, and I came to know my father better, I came to see exactly what it was my mother saw in my father and why they were together.
1: So let's get into some of what this book is about. And and as you say, your father's life before he met your mother, how would you describe him in this part of his life you know you the book one of the, the subtitles it says a canadian activist in spain's cold war but civil how would war. you or excuse me civil war yeah. um how does does the word activist accurately sum up the way you think of your dad during this part of his life
0: yes it took a long time to figure out you know titles are very tricky. And activist was the best word. The RCMP called him a radical. They put him into their radical files. And I always grew up, by the way, with uh, an understanding of the need for radicals in our society if there's ever going to be social change. So there were certain values and ideas that my father imparted. But what was behind it we didn't know and uh so activist i think was the most fitting term he was always taking action from from the time he was a boy it was in his genetic structure (laughs) that story about his days in uh, a school in manchester after he'd been orphaned when a bomb crashed into the place where he was living in London with his family. And he stood up to a cruel and sadistic master and the master was fired as a result. So he had set his course early. There was just something in his DNA.
1: In the book, it profiles him, as you said, as as a young kid. And and do you know why he came to Canada? He comes to Canada in uh, his early twenties what is it that brought him from England over to North America?
0: Well, I I'm not absolutely certain, but I have a feeling that because of what he writes about after he graduated from a secondary school in Bristol, it was like a technical school and he trained uh, to be a carpenter, uh, he found various jobs, and even went to a marine school for a while. But I have a feeling that in the late 20s the jobs were a bit hard to come by in the UK, unlike in North America. And so there was a there was a program to get people from the UK into Canada to help with the wheat harvest. Right. <laughs> it had it went on for I don't know. Decades and uh, you could work off your passage by working on a wheat farm for the fall. And he did that in 1928. That's how he came to Canada.
1: Right, which is kind of unfortunate timing, though, right? Like, you know, to come to work, looking for work, uh, particularly in, in the agriculture sector, right in that period just before everything sort of goes wrong with the, the Stock market crash of course, 1929 that sets off the depression and then the environmental catastrophe of the dust bowl kind of you, tough timing for him when coming to Canada at that particular point.
0: Uh, exactly. <laughs> he had no problem getting a job after the wheat harvest uh, ended and there was a housing boom in Regina. Now this was a thing. I had no idea that after, well, I didn't know he'd worked on the wheat harvest. I had no idea that Saskatchewan was his base. I guess Mm. that's where I start. So that was one of the big secrets he kept from us, that Saskatchewan was his home in Canada. And uh, he only left for certain reasons that we'll be discussing later, I'm sure. But um, he loved the prairies and the people and... uh, he worked as a carpenter in Regina, and it was a you know, housing boom, and then a stock market crash of 1929. And things went south from there very quickly for him.
1: So how much do you think that experience, and certainly Regina, it's a place that I know well from my time at the University of Regina, and it's a city that you know, I, I don't know how much of the left wing politics of this country that a lot of it starts in Saskatchewan, in Regina, particularly, I don't know how much of that remains, but certainly there's a legacy of it in the city with the, the history of the city and some of the monuments and plaques that exist there. So during his time in the city, how much do you think he is, he becomes a product of those left wing movements in the city at the time and how much do you think he's part of the the organizing and the push towards it that that is really one of the leaders that is pushing for things like unionization and better rights for workers like how does he fit into that city's history during that early 30s which is such a, a an important time not only for regina and saskatchewan but as it turns out really that movement kind of spreads all across the country
0: well, it would seem he was uh, active in his union from the beginning, and uh, people started getting fired um, in uh, where he, you know where he was building houses. And uh, he ended up getting fired because he was trying to uh, get better rights for the workers. And then he ended up getting blacklisted in his profession for trying to organize uh so I would say he was probably one of one of the leaders there would have been certainly others it just he would have been active in, at that time and uh, he was even then I think he was probably involved with the trades and labor Council he certainly was in Saskatoon later on and uh, he, doesn't give a lot of information but he does detail how his his salary went down and then when he was finally fired and he couldn't get a job in his trade and how he tried to organize road building crew and got fired from that as well I mean I think he was doing his best and just running into roadblocks at every turn and um, that's when he and Bill decided, his friend Bill, who got fired also from the road building crew, uh, decided to go back to England for a short time.
1: This is so fascinating to me, This that moment of going back, because it's it's one of these things where it's not easy to travel <laughs> no. in the 1930s, right? So, so what is the decision to go back to England and then, of course, to come back? to to Canada later like like do you have a sense of what was motivating him and, and thinking about the financial the economics of it and looking for jobs versus the political side of it and being blacklisted and the the push for workers rights that he's been involved in in Canada versus maybe some personal things that are, that are going through his head he's in his late 20s uh, at, at this point and you know that's an age where Some people at least start thinking about families and all that. And, you know, know, what are some of the pulls on him as he's moving throughout this somewhat volatile period, not only in his life, but really in global history?
0: Well, he would have gone back to England in uh, 1920, 30 or 31. So it was pretty early in the depression and he was in his early 20s. So. He, he wasn't thinking, He I think he does say at one point that he dreamed of saving money uh, and buying a little place on the prairies. That's what he wanted to do. Now, the reason he went back was because um, the R.B. Bennett Conservative government was assuring the citizens of Canada, you know, after, mm, what, a couple of years of depression and it may not have been two years before he went back, but sometime early on in the great depression, that prosperity was just around the corner. And so he thought, I imagine that he thought that, well, I've, I've done my best. I I can't get a job. I can't organize workers. So um, I'm going to go back and live it up. He was always a very good saver. So he went back to England and saw friends and you know had a had a good time in England.
1: Hmm. So uh so he does that comes comes back I want to talk about the On to Ottawa trek and the Regina Riot. Okay. This is uh, a big moment in Canadian history. If you don't know about it the the On to Ottawa trek basically it's the idea of workers are are coming to Ottawa. They stop on the train and at every stop along the way more people are added. The RCMP in Regina decides, all right, that's enough. And through the orders of the uh, of the federal government, decide that's it's not going any further. They try to stop it. It ends up in a riot. If you ever are in Regina, there is a a a Regina riot walking tour that you can do through the downtown that I would highly recommend. It's quite a fascinating story. So. In your reading of his his material and in in your understanding, what was his role in the Regina riot? And why did he end up in jail?
0: My understanding of his role is that uh, when it was being organized in Vancouver, he met one of the organizers, a fellow named Red Walsh. And he became one of the minor players in it in that he was responsible for a group of men who are climbing on board this train and for keeping them in line because one of the very important things about the onto ottawa trek was to have good pr with the canadian citizens and they were supported all along the way by canada's citizens and um so they needed to to be very well-disciplined, which they were, so they had these people like my father who were responsible for 40 or so on the trek. So that was his his role. He was never, you know, a major leader in anything except perhaps later on in, in Saskatoon for an election, but he was always involved in interesting leadership roles (laughs) and then he ended up in a jail cell because he he had he was probably battling with a policeman on a horse an RCMP officer on a horse who was trying to club everybody in the way and what had happened was he my father was trying to protect a woman and her baby because there were a lot of citizens at this so-called Regina Riot. By the way, he calls it the use of force to halt the trek, which is what <laughs> the participants called it. So at some point, he is hit over the head trying to get this mother and baby to safety, and no doubt, you know, <laughs> defending himself along the way. And he ha- he wakes up in a jail cell. So I mean, he's released the next morning.
1: But he, he does. Is this sort of the moment or a moment in which his perception of the RCMP or the relate, whatever relationship with the RCMP, is this sort of a a foundational moment in that? Because in, in the book, you get the sense that there's an obvious distrust. I think, I think that's a fair way to put it, that he has for the RCMP and certainly the RCMP is keeping tabs on him. And is this a moment in time where that really becomes crystallized?
0: I'm not sure. It, it's quite possible that it was, but his relationship, his personal relationship with the RCMP started later that year in December. But Well, actually, before that, in the relief camps, it would have been RCMP that escorted him out of the relief camps. The relief camps were set up in 1932, and uh, so he was escorted out of many by the RCMP for organizing relief camp workers.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so, all right, so let, let's push it ahead a couple of years and into where the crux, I think, of the book is, and, and that is the Spanish Civil War. And he decides to go to Spain. And do and you have a sense of what was the main motivation for him to get involved in the Spanish Civil War?
0: Well, he says in the book, and I think this would be the case, and he took some months to really think about whether he would go. Uh, Obviously, he'd been thinking about it a lot before he actually made the decision. He got his passport in the summer of 1937, so he was thinking about it then he had a he was getting his canadian passport he already had a british passport so he made a point of getting his canadian passport and so i think that was part of his planning to go but it was i think the crux of it had to do with fighting for democracy he s- democracy in spain was under serious threat because of a military coup by the generals, um, and it ended up being led by Francisco Franco. And there was, as I said, front... Well, before we started talking officially here, I I mentioned how it was uh, front page news for months and months and months. The Canadian citizens were extremely well informed about what was going on in Spain, And the rest of the world, Uh, they had all these news wires feeding into the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, where he was at the time. So he went over with a lot of knowledge as to what he was getting into and what he was fighting for. He was fighting for democracy.
1: Right. But it is one of these things, though, that I, I always find it fascinating that when we talk about the Spanish Civil War and the Canadian participation in the Spanish Civil War, one of the questions that comes to mind and and people have written about this is what compelled them to go and fight in Spain and the idea of fighting for democracy and and the rights that are involved or that were under threat by Franco and and the coup as you mentioned in a modern sense sometimes it's hard to think about people traveling to fight for rights elsewhere. And there's a, and I, I, maybe it's just more prominent today, given everything going on, but you you see a lot of, if it doesn't affect me personally, I'm not gonna do anything about it. And I wonder that when you look at somebody like Jim in, in the past, going to fight for Spain, a, a guy who's from England, who's lived in Canada, to go over to Spain to participate in that, that is an obvious major life decision, a major thing to go do to potentially sacrifice your life for this cause. And is this something that obviously growing up and, and knowing him uh, throughout your, your childhood until his passing, is that something that the Jim Higgins that was your father that you knew growing up Did you, were you ever surprised that that is a decision that he would have made as a younger man?
0: Well, I guess when I say we knew nothing, I knew nothing about him growing up. Neither did my siblings. I realize now my mother would have known everything, (laughs) but it wasn't a big surprise in that we knew he'd fought in a war in Spain. It's just that he never said anything else other than that, and we never really knew what the Spanish Civil War was. So (laughs) nobody did. I mean, it it, it was like, it it just wasn't talked about during the Cold War years, as far as I was concerned, who, who knew what the Spanish Civil War was, and how critical and important it was at the time, and how Franco, it it was a civil war in one way, and it it was led by the generals, but Franco could never have won without the support of Hitler and Mussolini. So it was a war in Europe. It was a democratically elected government, a left-wing government. My father and his comrades who went over were left-wingers. Some of them were members of the Communist Party, A lot of them would have been uh, members of the uh, Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. They would have been active in uh, unions such as they were at the time. My father was coming out of a Labour Council meeting when he decided to go. I have a feeling that by 1937, he was back in Saskatoon and things were a little better. It was still the Great Depression, but... um, Better than it had been when they were having to stay in the relief camps uh, and so on. So I think his future—he could see a future, but this was something that just got to him and almost 17 other, 1,700 other Canadians who went over, and some of those Canadians were new were immigrants like my father, but they were from Eastern European countries, and they knew what was happening in their own countries. So this was an opportunity for for them to uh, fight for the cause. And of course, the it was the common turn that organized the international brigades, as they were known, and they came from. And now the latest book by Giles Tremlett in the UK says that the volunteers came from just over 60 countries. That's six, oh, six zero countries. So it was a huge worldwide endeavor by the communist international or the Comintern to bring people into Spain to help the Spanish government, which was definitely not a communist government. You know, what had happened was Franco had the army and the Spanish government did not. So this was an attempt to, you know, they they were very clever with their popular front strategy from 1935 on and getting a lot of people on board for left-wing causes. And of course, hopefully leading to people joining the Communist Party. So they this popular front strategy appealed to a lot of people, including the citizens of Canada, they supported their boys in Spain. They sent care packages. There was a lot of fundraising that went on with citizens. So it was a general kind of feeling of support for the Spanish government.
1: And, and it's one of those things, too, where, you know, we, as you say, we were talking before, that a lot of people, certainly in a retrospectively, have, have looked at the Spanish Civil War as almost a precursor to the Second World War and and alliances were lining up and you knew where everybody stood. And it set the table for what broke out a couple years later. And it's one of these things that the Second World War kind of overshadows it, yet it's a very important moment in time. And and for Canada, as you you said, it's a front page news across the country. And yet the radio side of it, which is what I've studied, On the radio, like just radio, it's not necessarily Spanish Civil War on radio, but on the radio side, it doesn't get as much attention as the Second World War does on radio. And it's this interesting dichotomy of front page news. People are really talking about it, and it's an issue that is very important politically, yet on radio, it doesn't get nearly the same attention as does the Second World War. And I think that is in part based on where the CBC was as the national broadcaster in 1937 versus 1939. A lot of progress had been made by the organization in those two years. But you also have the reality of there's not as many Canadians participating and Canada isn't officially participating in the Spanish Civil War in the same way as the Second World War. So you don't get that same pop culture attention on radio. And I kind of think that it does affect the way in which the spanish civil war is remembered in this country and the participants like your father are remembered because if we get into some of what he did during the spanish civil war the it, it's noted that he was described as being particularly brave during his time in the spanish civil war so what are some of those experiences and you know i'm in particular thinking about the manuel alvarez alvarez story but what yeah. are some of those moments in the book, in your dad's story from Spain that really stood out to you as you went through it?
0: Wow, that's a big, big question. (laughs) Wow. Um, There's so much in there. What stands out for me is the relationship my father had with the Spanish people uh, and Spanish soldiers that he fought with that Two soldiers, he was, there were some Canadian soldiers he was, he was close to. Um, There were several who went from uh, Saskatoon, for example, who were in the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, which was the Canadian battalion in Spain, which by the way, had to be comprised of also uh, Americans and and Spaniards. Um, But uh, that was the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion which was formed before my father went over and was part of the international brigades. And in the, uh, it was the 15th international brigade brigade, which was the English speaking brigade and the soldiers he was closest to. uh, One was a captain, uh, Jose Medina Lopez. And he was someone who was, he was in intelligence and my father reported through him To the Fifth Army Corps, which was one of the, which was the section of the Spanish Army that was at the Aragon front, where most of the International Brigaders were front were fighting, Uh, and uh, so that relationship was a special one, and I was able to find out a little bit more about Jose Medina from um, an archivist, uh, a woman in. Uh, Valencia who went into the archives there for me and um, he was thrown into prison and sentenced to death after the war ended and Franco won. Um, He managed uh, to have that sentence commuted and he went into exile and there's I think there's a lot more information about him that I'd like to know and the other was Jose Diaz who was a soldier that was assigned to him uh, in April 1938, my father went to an officer training school. It was very secret, um, and uh, my father was assigned a translator and a fellow machine gunner. My father was in the machine gun unit of the MACPAPs. He also fought with the brigade machine gun unit and the 35th division machine gun unit. And when he was doing that, he was he was with the intelligence side of things. Jose Medina was his translator and helped with the training of young Spanish recruits before they crossed the Ebro River in late July 1938. Um, that was known as the Battle of the Ebro. And it was basically the last battle of the war before Franco won. And... He had an extremely close relationship with Jose Diaz, and the internationals were withdrawn from the war by the Prime Minister of Spain, Juan Negrin. On September 21st, he made the announcement, and then September 23rd, 1938, all the international brigaders were recalled from the war, and he had, Negrin had hoped that in doing this, uh, Franco would uh, end his relationship with Hitler and Mussolini. But of course that didn't happen. He just redoubled his efforts and killed a lot more civilians and and soldiers and so on. And my father stayed on with with, uh, Jose Diaz until the third week of January, he was fighting in Spanish units. So he needed an interpreter. He did not speak Spanish. Uh, he showed up in the nick of time to get finally the Canadians were able to get out of Spain. They'd been there from you know twiddling their thumbs, most of them from September 23rd until the third week of January, and they'd been processed ready to leave. But the problem, of course, was raising funds. But it was saying goodbye to Jose Diaz that. I mean, I am close to tears every time I read that section, just thinking about how close my father was to him and thinking that he was probably leaving him to die.
1: And and certainly that does come through the the power of of that moment in that relationship. And is that something that your father ever talked about uh, other than the book? Is, Is that a relationship that he he discussed and and did you find out what happened to jose?
0: No, it was he, he never ever ever talked about the details of that war at all. So hmm. I mean I I had, I say in the in the prologue there was something hanging out in his woodworking workshop. I never turned knew he'd been he trained to be a carpenter. He he worked right. in a factory. <laughs> <laughs> But that would explain why he had a a woodworking workshop in our house growing up in Peterborough, Ontario. There was a leather suit hanging there, like pants and a jacket. And um, I had no idea other than he I'd asked him once and he said, well, it was from my the Spanish Civil War. So I wondered if it had come off a dead soldier. Well, I found out since, and my father, or my brother Jim, had a very good memory of that, that jacket, because he said he tried it on once, <laughs> it started cracking and falling apart. Um, and uh, so his description of it, I can tell, it's jackets that the that they wore on the Republican side when they were fighting um, in the wintertime. If they were lucky, you know, they fought in bitterly cold weather the Battle of Tirol, which was in January of 38 and uh, my father would have seen part of that unfortunately he didn't write about it and in part because he was at another um, officer training school in February but they almost they were freezing to death they were losing you know toes and fingers and trying to wrap themselves in blankets. It was, it was a horrible, horrible fight in the mountains.
1: So in addition to that, I, I, there is the story too, of the 1980 book, The Tall Soldier, and your father is the tall soldier. So, um, so, so let's get into that a little bit. (laughs) First, was your father a particularly tall man? Is that an apt title?
0: <laughs> he would have been to an 11 uh, year old kid named Manuel Alvarez. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: my father was five foot seven during the 1930s. He had two major back surgeries in the 60s and he was to lose a couple of inches because of that.
1: Let, let's talk about Manuel Alvarez. So, this is a, a young boy who your father saved during a bombing campaign during the war, who writes a book about it. (laughs) And this is something that strikes me as it's not only the story of what happens in the Spanish Civil War, but also what happens towards the end of your dad's life, where all this kind of comes together. So I want to know from your perspective, what did you think about when you first learned about this story, I'm assuming that you read the book at some point, maybe not right away in the 1980s, but what was your reaction to Manuel Alvarez, his book and his telling this story of your father?
0: Well, um, it, there are two, uh, phases. Um, and the first phase happened, uh, in 1977, 78, the veterans of the Mackenzie Papineau battalion had started to get together physically. I'm sure some of them kept in touch over the years, but I think they felt safe to get together and safe in the fact that, you know, most of them were followed by the RCMP. Um, and so they decided that they better get things written down. Everybody was getting older and in September of 77 my father got a letter from the MacPap Veterans Association saying we want you to write your stories of the Spanish Civil War if you have written anything send it to us so my father did he sent what he'd been writing the you know from January he he wrote nonstop from January after we had persuaded him to write his story, so he started. He sent these in, so that's piece number one. And then in October, an article came out in Weekend Magazine. It was written by Eve Durbot, uh, the soldiers in eight-dollar suits, and it was about the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion in Spain. It was the first time there was any kind of real coverage about those 1,700 Canadians who volunteered for the Spanish Civil War back in, you know, 1937-38. And over 400 were killed of the almost 1,700 that went. So here, for the first time, you know, like 40 years later, is this article. And in Vancouver at this time is a man who has emigrated from Spain. His name is Manuel Alvarez and he's become a very successful businessman in Vancouver and it turns out he reads this article and he is ecstatic because for the first time this man whose life was saved by a Canadian soldier is getting some contacts. He had spent those years, he vowed to his father, he would find the tall Canadian soldier who had saved his life during a bombing on a water tank in Corbera de Abra, Spain. And what had happened was uh, Manuel and uh, a 17-year-old girl from the village, uh, Rosita, were hiding in the pump house they had run into the pump house under the water tank. The bombers, I mean, these would have been um, Hitler's planes, by the way, dropping bombs, would have seen these kids go in. They dropped, made a direct hit on the water tank. It's on the side of a mountain going down to the, or going down to a river. So, of course, this huge shoot of water there, it's a wooden shed is ripped apart, and Rosita and Manuel are being carried down in the torrent, and suddenly Manuel, he describes it so well in the book, what it's like being in that torrent, and he's suddenly pulled out by this man who takes him to a a station, uh, a first aid station, and and leaves him there. And um, so, Manuel is reading this. He has spent 40 years looking for the tall soldier. He contacts someone in Vancouver, who's mentioned in the article, who was quoted. finally gets in touch with this fellow and he tells a story, I'm looking for this man who saved my life during a bombing raid on Corvair Debra. And the man says, well, (laughs) that could have been anybody, but I'll ask my contact in Toronto. The contact in Toronto had just read a very short piece by my father describing the same incident. And my father says at the end of the piece, I don't suppose the lad could have survived.
1: Hmm.
0: So Manuel ends up meeting with my father in uh, 1978. It's big international news at the time. Uh, I mean, a lot of news in Canada and they're interviewed. Newspapers, a lot of radio interviews because I have yeah. them. I have a CBC, several CBC radio interviews Barbara Frum and Peter Zosky. And Manuel went home and he wrote the book. It was published in 1980. I mean, everything happened very, very quickly. And The Tall Soldier, My 40 Year Search for the Man Who Saved My Life, was published in 1980 to more international news interest and media coverage. And, uh, they were interviewed that, that may have been the time that they were interviewed by, uh, from and Zosky. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was because my father was in pretty bad shape. He, he died in 1982 and he'd already started having strokes, you know, these TIAs, uh, before that. So it meant so much to my father, to me, it's an extraordinary extremely important part of his story, how he was finally vindicated in a way, you know, they were never vindicated by the Canadian government. They flouted a law that had been passed specifically to prevent them from going to volunteer in Spain called the Foreign Enlistment Act. So no one was ever prosecuted under that act. But they had done something against the law when they went to fight in Spain. So this was a vindication for my father. He was getting, he was being thanked um, by someone for the sacrifices that he and his comrades made. And so he and Manuel viewed themselves as representative of a bigger story. And my father had, my father always said, "If, if I was a hero, the hero that they say I am, then every single Canadian who volunteered to fight in Spain was a hero.
1: So what do you think then the legacy is of, of your father with regards to, to his story? Because as you mentioned, when they came home, they weren't treated particularly well. They had violated a law. So he gets branded as a communists. The we alluded to earlier, there's, he's being followed by the RCMP. He's not, fully welcomed home. So what is that legacy in, for him, and how do you think it affected the rest of
0: his life? Well, it affected the rest of his life in that he left Saskatoon because of hounding by the RCMP. I had Early on, I had run across this little note that um, he'd written about being in a boiler room of an apartment building. A superintendent friend had had let him stay in the boiler room. And when I first read this, I thought, well, this was when he was homeless in the 1930s. Now I realize this was 19, they returned in 1939 and it would have been the winter of 1940. Things got so bad for him. He was hiding out in a boiler room. I found out from his file, that um, he, the home that he had lived in uh, was searched by the RCMP. They got a, a search warrant. So he was really hounded out of Saskatoon, and that's when he went to British Columbia, bought a bike, went over the border, spent several months biking across the states and, and visiting the families of fallen comrades from the Lincoln Battalion. And uh, ended up in New York. So he basically spent a year away from Canada. It was, you know, he was in exile in a way. And uh, so it's why he, he never, that was the lasting legacy, why he never talked about his past. And even when I was growing up in Peterborough, I was stunned to find out that in the 1950s, there was a RCMP officer uh, coming to Peterborough once a month from the Coburg detachment of the RCMP to report on what he was doing. My father was a proud Canadian, and, and he participated in Canadian democracy, he, he, he's the kind of person that, you know, is valuable. As, as, as a citizen of, of a democracy, but <laughs> he, was, he was never acknowledged for that.
1: Right. And, and one of the things, too, that, that stood out to me as I was reading it is that you have or he had obviously this real sense of, of duty and he felt strongly about the things that he believed in and obviously was willing to, to go and fight for them and make sacrifices for them. And, and it's such a, a remarkable story. And I say to students all the time is that I think that that history is really about the stories of, of the people who lived in the past, what they did, why they did it. And, and that's where the interest really for me comes in studying the past. And this is a, a great example of that. This is really a, a very well-told story, obviously from the, the first person perspective, but also the contributions that you've made to it. So, For anyone who's looking to get the book and learn more about your father and his story, where can they find it?
0: Well, it's available wherever books are sold. I'm delighted to say it took a while to get into Chapters Indigo, but it's now uh, available there as well. So any independent bookstore can get it in. Most won't be stocking it, of course, but Uh, They're doing a lot of special orders now, and, you know, it's been difficult to launch this book during the time of COVID, but I'm hoping that people will find it relevant to what's going on today in the world. I think there are certain themes that run through the book that are similar to the sorts of things we're experiencing today, and I've been told he's an inspiration. I think he is, so... He was my daddy, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a little biased.
0: Now. I'm a little biased.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we should say, too, that all proceeds are going to causes that were important to him.
0: That's right. That would have been important to him. And so I have a number of ideas in mind. The proceeds are trickling in. <laughs> um, and uh, but I want I really want to do something big. And I will be because I'm. I'm changing my will around this, so for sure, um, I, I want to acknowledge and remember him.
1: Yes, absolutely. So we would certainly encourage everybody to go and check out the book, again, title Fighting for Democracy, a Canadian Activist in Spain's Civil War, the true story of Jim Higgins, 1907 through 1982, and uh, his daughter, Jeanette has done a wonderful job of putting this together, adding her own contributions to it. And uh, Jeanette, I very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today.
0: It's been my pleasure, Sean, thank you.
1: So there you have it, my discussion with Jeanette Higgins. Of course, I thank her for her time and talking to me about the book. And again, I encourage everybody to check it out. It's Fighting for Democracy, a Canadian activist in Spain's civil war, the true story of Jim Higgins. And as we mentioned, all proceeds are going to causes that were important. To Jim, so definitely encourage you to check it out. And there are a couple other things. If you're interested in the Spanish Civil War, as, as I mentioned during the discussion with Jeanette, there are some resources available. It's not something that gets covered extensively, certainly in survey courses. So uh, one that was published recently last year by Tyler Wenzel. It's called "Not for King or Country." This tells the story of Edward Cecil Smith who was a member of the Communist Party of Canada during the 1930s and his participation in the Spanish Civil War. And then another one that's a little older by Michael Petru. It's called Renegades, Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. And this is uh, quite an interesting look back at those individuals who who fought in the war. Of course, you know, there'd be some debate over renegades, whether or not that's an accurate term to use uh, describing the individuals from Canada who went and fought, but uh, some more resources there if you're interested in Canadian participation in the Spanish Civil War. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever did you get your podcast. do the likes, the ratings, comments, all that stuff. Help beat the algorithms. And definitely head on over to activehistory.ca. Lots of great material over there as we turn the calendar to December, the end of the year coming up. So we'll have some, uh, some year in review type stuff and look out for the annual year in review a hundred years later, myself and Aaron boys will be back with that, uh, scheduled for December the 18th. So keep an eye out for that and head on over to active history for all the other great material we have over there. We will be back with you with another episode next week. If you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, please get in touch, HistorySlam, at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at TheSeanGraham. So until we talk again, if you're up and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.
0: Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.